As a leader in advanced HVAC technologies, Mitsubishi Electric is committed to continuous innovation around efficiency, comfort, and wellness, with a focus on personal comfort and prosperous communities. Mitsubishi offers a variety of indoor options, including high-wall floor mount, duct handlers, and extremely popular one-way ceiling cassette. Climate systems are great for a single room or the entire home, providing 100% capacity to minus 5 degrees. A full range of control options including Wi-Fi, touchscreen, and thermostats, and simple remotes are available to meet every customer's needs. Mitsubishi's regional sales and marketing teams are available to meet with you and help you grow your business. For more information, go to MitsubishiComfort.com. Kimberly Best is a Tennessee Rule 31 listed civil mediator and Tennessee Rule 31 trained family mediator, FINRA arbitrator, and an owner of Best Conflict Solutions, LLC. Kim's practice focuses on family mediation, health and elder care mediation, civil and business mediation, and personal and organizational conflict coaching and conflict consulting. You can learn more about Kimberly at bestconflictsolutions.com. Welcome, Kimberly. Good afternoon. Mark Madison here on Books and People. Today, I'm excited about our guest, Kimberly Best. And with a name like Best, that's kind of a high bar. It definitely is. I um, I get a little bit of good picking on uh, from time to time having Best as a last name, yes. He's the best. It made for a great company name, though, Mark, because it's Best Conflict Solutions. So. <laughs> I either have a really big ego or a great last name, and I'm going with a great last name. And a double entendre to boot. Right. <laughs> so where did you grow up? Cincinnati. Really? So you're an Ohio girl. I am. I lived, uh, I've been here in Nashville for about 24 years. So I've been here a while, but I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for a while before that. The last guest this morning, same thing. Grew up in Cleveland. Now he lives in Florida. I was born in Ohio. I live in Washington. I don't think anybody stays in Ohio. Not to <laughs> slam people in Ohio. It's just a lot of people are from there. Well, here's an irony. I have twins that were born in um, Charlotte and uh, have lived in the South their whole lives. They're 29 now. And my daughter just took a job as a professor for Ohio State. So um, it just boggles my mind. Like my family's going, you love beaches and mountains. So why Ohio? Yeah, I thought it was out. They pulled me back in. Right. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you grew up in Cincinnati. Where did you go to school? I went to St. William's grade school. And then uh, I went to high school in a teeny tiny town in Indiana. Um, in eighth grade, my mom wanted to move out into the country. So I went to Moores Hill High School, which was a graduating class of about 26. And what were the kind of the natural affinities, the things you really enjoyed in high school? Oh, let's see, in high school. I actually have always loved learning. I'm a bit of a nerd. I like to play sports. And like most high schoolers, I liked hanging out with my friends. And college was where? All over the place. So uh, I graduated from nursing school, Jewish Hospital School of Nursing with uh, our sciences out of Xavier when I was 19. So at, at 19 years old, I was a registered nurse. I wow. kept going back to school my whole life because I, I am addicted. I just I love learning. So I went to graduate school. Well, I got an undergrad at University of North Carolina. 
um, Charlotte in psychology and then went to graduate school in Charlotte for psychology in and out of other schools in the meantime. And then I got a graduate degree at the age of 50 at Lipscomb in conflict management. Lipscomb in Tennessee. It is. It's in Nashville. Yes, ma'am. And now what is you have a practice right i do and who are your clients typically anyone in conflict so well, i have a 90 percent of the population <laughs> yeah I, I have no shortage of potential clients this is true it's kind of not fair um no i i um work anywhere from couples in conflict including doing uh, divorce mediations to companies um small businesses having conflict between their employees. And I also do, on the other end of that, uh, social things, which I, I enjoy a lot, helping bring folks to dialogue. Um, I'm a volunteer mediator with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office in their uh, community police unification program. So having dialogues between the police and community members who have filed a complaint against particular police. Okay, so you're in Tennessee, but you're working in LA? Zoom. Zoom. <laughs> Zoom. Zoom. Zoom was the best thing to come out of COVID. COVID was awful. There was very little good that came out of it, but it was, uh, it did help people be able to connect all around the world and particularly in mediation, uh, which is a pretty new field. Most people don't really know what mediation is. Um, it, it helped us to um, be present for more opportunities and uh, meet other mediators from around the world. So it's been it's been good collectively for us. If we could just go back about four years and buy stock in Zoom. Oh, I know. That's so true. It's just taken off. And, you know, as a professional speaker, it, my business changed dramatically for a couple of years. And Zoom was the saving grace. You know, yeah. it's uh, webinars yeah. and, and coaching. Webinars. And, yeah, right. it's crazy. Yeah. So what, okay, so with a nursing background, you have a gigantic heart and you genuinely care <laughs> about people. I know that even though this is the first time we met. <laughs> what is it you love about the work that you do? Um, so I worked in the emergency department and um, I worked in every intensive care there was. And, uh, and I, that was like, you know, emergency for the body. I do right. like people. Now I feel like what I'm doing is kind of an emergency room for, for the soul or for relationships because um, dealing with conflict quicker can cause a pretty quick transformation or at least a, a different road than the one we're on, which can be transformational too. So I like that it expands people's possibilities. It empowers them. Um, I like that when you hold a space that's safe, to have discussions that are potentially challenging, that um, there's there's this grace that comes. I know, I know it sounds cheesy, but I really call it a miracle that if you hold a safe space for conversation, ideas come, uh, connection comes, and it never ceases to amaze me. So that's why I like what I do. I also hold very sacred that the people who come to me with problems are sharing things that they haven't been able to talk about for a long time, or talk to one another about. So we hold these so deep in us that that it's just sacred to be able to hear what people's pain is. Do you subscribe to the philosophy that we're only as sick as our secrets? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, 
we're only as thick as our secrets. I would say those secrets don't help. I would say, Mark, that I am pretty certain that the things that are in the dark become way less scary when the light is shined on them. Yes. So um, I, I think we can be sicker than that, but I think that definitely is a contributor. Yeah, I'm a mediator, so we all say it depends. That's my favorite word. It depends. <laughs> mediators, so. <laughs> well, it depends. Let's keep talking. So okay. you said, right? And then he said, mm -hmm. so there's got to be a middle ground here somewhere, mm. right? I mean, that's what I mediation think... is, right? Uh, sort of a middle ground. I mean, it's that's probably a, a you know very simple way of saying it. I would say recognition of both grounds. So in conflict, we usually give ourselves two choices or two sides. It's his or it's hers, right? right? And in mediation draws a line between those. And anything on that spectrum becomes an opportunity, not just this or this. And the second thing on that is we learn to hold two truths. Because often in an argument or a conflict, we're insisting on our facts being the facts. And at the end of the day, the facts don't really matter so much as the impact of those um, that experience that you had or the miss on the need that wasn't met or the hurt because of stepping on someone's toes. All those matter way more than what time it was and whether or not it was before or after dinner. You know, so uh, we hold two truths based on our past experiences, based on our own biologies, based how we experience something new. And we get so sidetracked on whose truth is the right truth. And uh, it's the right truth for you, and it's the right truth for the other person as well. And once we can establish that, we can start looking at it from their shoes, which is what empathy is, which is something that is kind of important in uh, mediating conflict. We dig so deep in our position when we first come to the table. It's difficult to get off that position and move to somewhere in the middle. It is. That's very, very well said. Yes, very well said. And I will say one of the things I say about that is, um, you know, just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean that I'm against you. Mm, boy, what a it great means, phrase. It means I'm me. It means I have my past, my biology, um, the things that have come into my life that are different than yours. But it doesn't mean I'm against you. I can be disagreeing with you and still be in relationship and still love you and still right. respect you. But we hold so deeply to that difference that we forget to see the whole human, right? Like we're just, we're identifying people by the thing we disagree with. And we're all so much more than that. I forget who it was. I think his name was Gordon. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, talks about the I message. Are you familiar with that concept? I, I think I know what you mean by the I message, but but go ahead and tell me more. I don't know. Who when goes. you do that, I feel right. this way. <laughs> right, right. When you yell at me, I feel like you don't respect me. Right. Right. As opposed to stop yelling, you're you're mean or whatever. That's right. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can uh, back to what you just said. I can disagree with you, but it. But also, you need to know how I feel when you do this. Exactly. I feel exactly. threatened. I feel unsafe. I feel whatever. Right. Wow. And the second part of that, the second part of that, Mark, is um, being 
able to let the other person be uncomfortable with your truth if your truth is kindly delivered. So I say this to say so many times we say, I don't want to upset so-and-so. Well, upset is a great uh, conductor for change, you know, but not upset to the point of being mean or unkind about it, but letting people know your truth and maybe they won't like it for a few moments, but that's okay. That's right. okay. That's just it my point of view. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's important to know if I want to know you. So I think uh, just hearing you say that just makes me think of if you're that honest with me, then I know who you are. And knowing who you are might help me not make up a story about you because that story I make up about you. probably. Yeah, we change the narrative to suit our position or point of view. Yeah. Gandhi, I think Gandhi said everybody thinks their watch is telling the right time. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I wrote it down in my journal like 25 years ago, but it's, yeah. it's one of those things where I have to remember that because you, you touched on something earlier about empathy and it's, you know, it's walking in somebody else's shoes. There's a big difference between sympathy and empathy. And, right. and empathy is a muscle though. What I've been learning, because I'm a guy, right? <laughs> it comes a little harder for guys to have empathy than women. And I know that's a broad generalization, but that's been my experience is women tend to have greater levels of empathy. Um, and I see that travel, I travel every week, you know, and occasionally someone, a woman will say, oh, excuse me, or pardon me, or I'm sorry. And I say, well, you don't have anything to be sorry about. You didn't do anything wrong. And the, and the guy will bump you and not even look at you and not acknowledge that he did it. And it's like, oh. okay, so he doesn't have any empathy and she has too much. Well, right? it sounds like rudeness <laughs> instead right. of empathy, but <laughs> maybe you're saying women have better manners. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, that's ab that's absolutely true. I mean, I married up, you know. <laughs> Congratulations! Good oh yeah, you. oh absolutely. <laughs> I um, hope your wife is listening. <laughs> no, she's heard me tell this many times. I mean, on our first date, she said, "Do you think the plaid shirt goes with the striped pants?" And oh, on the my. second date, she said, "Do you have a different shirt?" Because I was wearing the same shiny disco shirt I was wearing on the first date. And then the third date, she said, why don't we go shopping? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, she smooth was remodeling operator. you early. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that can yeah. be a good thing. And it can be a challenge because I do see um, not not that this is your wife, but uh, very often women see men as projects, which implies oh. there's something wrong with you, right? Like I if was I'm a trying big project. To if I'm trying to fix project. you, there's something wrong with you. And most people don't do well thinking that someone thinks there's something wrong with them. I mean, I'm a fixer too, so I'm not, <laughs> I don't really feel like I can, I feel like adults can pick their own stuff, you know, and if, if your shirt and your pants don't match, then that should be a reflection of you and not a reflection of me, I think. Well, the fashion police arrested me once a week, so she was on to something. I mean, you know, yeah, she probably just helped your success get a lot better by. Well, there's no question. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, the first five years of our marriage, every birthday, Christmas and Father's Day, my wife would buy my father clothes. Right. <laughs> and so by the end of the fifth year, he came over for like Father's Day and I said, Pop, you're looking great, man. You look so sharp today. And he stopped and he looked at what he was wearing and he said, well, I ought to. Your wife bought me everything I'm wearing. <laughs> she Which must I have excellent was a, taste. Right. Just it was just lovely. You know, he cleaned up nice. And I got I came by my sartorial uh slights, honestly, right? Because <laughs> my father's son. So 
How long ago did you write your book? And have you written more than one? I only know of the one. Ah, no, I'm actually just started the second one. My after the first one, it's pretty painful to write a book. So especially that one, because it's I really just poured my soul into that. And then your soul is out there for other people to read. And that's that's just a lot. Um, but I am starting one on conflict. I hope I finish it. But um, I think there's so much about conflict that we just haven't learned that are tools. And if we have these tools, I think we can we can be better parents, we can be better partners, we can be better neighbors. And ultimately, you know, I hope that kind of um, increased communication and sort of peace building can generate to a, a more peaceable world. Do you subscribe to the notion that we go from position to preference as kind of a half step method to change? A position to preference. Right. Here's my position. But if you could have a preference, what would it be? And now I'm moving off position to preference. I think that's a great question that I'm going to use in uh, mediation. It's well, I hear I, what your I hear what your position is. Now, tell me what your preference is. Well, yeah. I, I guess I would say I would say, what do you need? That would probably be my next thing I would say after a position. So what I just like need? I just like alliterations, you know, so. Position and preference seems to be kind of a smooth segue. That works for Mark Madison, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I guess, you know. So tell us about the book. So How to Live Forever, a guide to writing the final chapter of your life story was sort of a full circle of mine, working in, like I said, every intensive care unit there is trauma and ultimately the emergency department, um, seeing people come in, um, in whatever shape they're coming in, never good. No one wakes up in the morning thinking they're going to end up in an emergency department. Right. But not having the conversations that say what they want and the uh, unintended consequences and the pain that that heaps not only on the person who is you know sick or injured, but on their family for not having uh, prepared for what they want from a legal aspect, from a healthcare, which I'm pretty passionate about, making healthcare decisions to end of life celebrations, to leaving your story behind as your legacy, mm -hmm. um, resolving family conflict to mitigate for regret, and um, and finally using mediation to hold these conversations because so far it's been my experience that most people don't want to talk about the fact that they're going to die. Right. Recently, I think about a year ago on a trip to Arizona, I found a book in a bookstore. Uh, I think Simon Sinek wrote. I'm not sure. I don't remember the author, but he said uh, it was The Power of Regret. That was the name of the book. That's mm. what caught my attention. And uh, he said, you know, we can we can leverage reset, uh, regret by changing the words we use. If only is almost always how every regret manifests. And he contends that you first you say if only and then you get it out, but then you say at least. Well, if only I'd have started this sooner. Well, at least I started at all. Mm -hmm. right. And so that kind of segue, and I'm reading this going, my gosh, this is I wish I'd have known this like 25 years ago. Right. Yeah. But so in addition to that, Mark, I would say when I have people say, Well, I should have done this instead, the truth is we don't know that another choice would have given us a better outcome. Right. 
It could have it could have been so much worse. We don't know. And if you make the best choice you can in that moment, I think that that mitigates for regret. Oh, that's a great point. Well, I was a better parent with our second child than I was with our first. And just because I had more experience, I did the best I could as my parents did the best they could with what they had so, at the time. <laughs> so this might make you feel a little better in all parents with a firstborn. When I went to graduate school in psychology, my the child psych professor said that we should all get a practice child and we can trade that <laughs> trade that child in on our real child, right? And that uh, practice child's name is our firstborn. Oh. So I typically apologize to all firstborns, including my own, that my youngest, I have five, my youngest says that the children who make it to 40 years old get survivor status. So the oldest is survivor number one. And <laughs> I have a survivor number two. The rest of them are under 40. But that's from the joke of, you know, the first uh, the first child really being an experiment. Bless their hearts. Right. I remember, <laughs> you know, when Colin would fall down and we'd go, oh, are you OK? We make a big deal of it. And he'd see us and the way we were acting. And so then he would cry because of how we reacted to what happened. When the second one came along, he would fall. I'd say, you're fine. Get up. We don't, we don't have time. You're made out of rubber. You just bounce back. Somewhere in the middle, Mark. Right? I mean, you know, it's like. You needed yeah. a third. Yeah. And, yeah. and then the third came along and said, you know, you're going to do great. You know, <laughs> I've, I've been learning that, that praising progress is more important than giving them a good name. You know, in a, I think it was Dale Carnegie who said, give a dog a good name and he'll rise to the occasion. And I've long subscribed to that and it's it's worked. But what I'm learning now is praising the grind, praising the effort. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, that's what matters, that they that they stay the course and finish the job. Yeah, no, how, yeah, I think, I think you're right. How does so it almost sounds like the book is about rounding third, you know, if I use the baseball metaphor. I like that. But, you know, the other point of that is we never know when rounding third is going to happen. Right. I have I have stories from just my own experiences and people who taught me along the way. And one is a young man who was in his 20s who died of bone cancer and he was a, a family friend. Um, and I know at the end um, I write this in the book, I'll give it a, give it anyway, because it was so beautiful. I never forgot it. The mama said um, I prayed for a miracle and then I realized he was the miracle. Mm. So it's not for me how long we have, it's how well we do that time that we have. Because I also had a, a niece die at the age of five from a brainstem glioma. And uh, we don't know how long the candle's going to burn, but we can be intentional on how it burns while it's there. Right. I heard a woman speak and she'd lost her 18-year-old son who had a full scholarship to play football at USC to a drunk driver. And she said, we die twice, once when we pass, and the second time when people stop talking about us. Oh, there's a brand new book on grief where the gentleman, I'm going to see if I can find it. Um, he, he, uh, it just came out, and he lost his um, two teenagers to a drunk driver. He was driving the car. And he writes on that uh, same thing. The word grief is in the book. Um, but... He says the same thing when we say um, there are no words, we're telling him that we can't speak about it. And what 
what uh, survivors really want to do. And of course, it's individualized, but really want to be able to speak about the person and name the person that they lost. And, yeah. yeah. We have to get comfortable with talking about this, just like with conflict. You know, it's one of those things in the dark that if we start talking about it, if we accept that it's going to happen and that in life, bad things happen, awful things happen, but that's life. It's not a punishment. It's not someone's fault. It's just life goes sideways. And if we can start talking about it, I think we can support each other a whole lot better. I agree. How, how does somebody go about getting your book? Um, Amazon for sure. And um, major booksellers have it. But, um, you know, I, I get all my books on Amazon because it's, delivers so much faster you and 300 million other people right <laughs> i do have friends that are totally against amazon and i respect that as well um you know order it from the bookseller that that you prefer i also want to say that i i mark that i have a free pdf on my website for um a book study which i've really loved doing um sometimes like a church group or some group will use the book and go through the chapters, you know, week by week or month by month, whatever they meet. And I don't, I love to pop in on those groups maybe and host a, a chapter of it because it's always yeah, so much. Those are fun. Those are it fun. is so much fun. Yeah. But there's a free PDF on my website um, offering the, that um, a workbook for that. If anyone, um, you know, is interested in that, help yourself. That's awesome. Thank you. How does someone, uh, get that PDF. It's the, the website is what? Uh, bestconflictsolutions.com. Pretty simple. Easy to remember. Best. Con best. Best. Conflict. Uh-huh. Solutions.com. Got it. You got it. The, the, the reason I'm doing that is uh, most of my listeners are in their car, you know, driving <laughs> or working out or something. So got to repeat it. How has the book impacted your practice? Oh, wow. Well, it came out right before COVID. That's a great question. It came out right before COVID. And I thought that was probably just a, what a timely thing, right? As we were losing people without having any part of these conversations. Um, I thought it could be something that opened the door to these conversations, but that blindsided everybody. And they, you know, a lot of people weren't ready to lean into that, but the people who have read it, um, I, I've had good reviews on it. Um, including from the ABA, the American Bar Association, but um, it's it's they say it's difficult to have those conversations, obviously, but such a relief to do it as well. So I think the book, I think writing a book, I did not know this, uh, but it does it does give you some credibility. No um, and I think the the big thing is I think people feel like they know you more. I mean, people read my book. And like I said, it, it's it's my soul in there. So I, I think that's a good thing since I work with people. It's your authentic voice, though, too. It was, yes. You know, I speak for a living, but the way I speak and the way I write are fairly congruent now. And I've had people say, I read your book and, you know, I can literally hear your voice. Mm -hmm. you know, You're so you. Yeah. And that alignment took a little while. You know, I've written eight books, but each one gets a little easier to be authentic you know and mm. not Mark, just in I style say, but i say as well i say your authenticity is your superpower 
I mean, I really <laughs> believe that. I think it's my superpower as a mediator. I think if we can model that, it gives other people permission to be authentic as well, which means yeah. that you're not perfect, that you're flawed, that you own it, um, that, yeah, that you show your humanity, which is pretty cool. It takes some courage, right? Right. Well, <laughs> I, I just finished writing a chapter on on Rule 62. You're familiar with that rule, right? I am not. Uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Okay. That's rule I'm a 62. Rule 31 mediator, so that's very interesting that it's twice what Rule 31 is here in Tennessee. <laughs> well, it's all just math in the end. All just pie. I mean, you know. Right. Uh, so, so what books have impacted you? I mean, I know that as a writer, I read voraciously because it serves the writing, but mm -hmm. what books had an impact coming up for you? I wish you could see my desk right now because I'm addicted to books kind of a, like once a week, I'm ordering a book that's, you know, cast aside. Um, I, in the conflict realm, there's a, our conflict guru in the country's name is Ken Cloak. He's just incredible. And he's written a lot um, mediating dangerously and a lot on high conflict stuff in front of me right now. I have Amanda Ripley's book on uh, called high conflict, why we get trapped. Um, but I, I, I enjoy some, my guilty, you know, fun reading for fiction is all things John Sanford. I'm a big John Sanford fan, a fan, mm. which is the Prey series. He's written about 99 of his books. Not really, but, um, really just anything that comes out. I'm, my son is, uh, in the service right now and I'm reading a book called The Devil's Playground, which is about the CIA back in the maybe 60s and yeah nonfiction. so right yeah nonfiction. yeah Interesting. it's really good yeah yeah he's um uh, yeah i read a book called how to deal with nasty people without becoming one of them by jay carter and that one was it's only 60 pages and i read it in like one sitting and i've you know quoted it for years but it's uh it's one of those things that once you once you stumble on something so simple as paraphrasing someone's position, mm. you know, uh, not not as a way to attack, but just to maybe defend. And uh, mm. and he called them little Hitlers, you know, just people who get in your grill and kind of attack you. They attack and retreat. He called them invalidators, which I thought was an interesting mm. phrase. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just holding a mirror up to him and saying you're in a lot of pain. What's oh, that's on? a beautiful mirror. That's a beautiful mirror. Um, did you did you read Who Moved My Cheese? Because that's been around forever, and I just was at a book study for that a week ago and just kind of read it with fresh eyes. With my son it? at a Barnes and Noble, I said I'll uh -huh. race you, and we read it together while we were sitting <laughs> in the bookstore. And I think a half an hour later, we were done. Right. It's it's known as an hour read. I read it a while back years ago and it, you know, didn't do much for me. But this time it had some some pertinence. And when something has some relevance in your life, it it's a lot more impactful. <laughs> well, the problem is I like cheese too much. So, you know, ah, that's I didn't hilarious. Like the title. Yes. <laughs> so who, you were in the you? maze trying to taste down your cheese, right? Yeah, no, I just put it on every sandwich. I can't help it. Um, <laughs> who are your mentors? Yeah, it's kind of like who hasn't been my mentor. Um, teachers of all sorts. Um, 
I'm a vice president of the Tennessee Association of Professional Mediators, and we bring in speakers that are just amazing in the field, and everybody's amazed that we can get such fine speakers here. And the truth is all of them have been my teachers. So, um, mm. yeah, I... From your I, Rolodex, if I can borrow an antiquated term. Uh-huh. Yeah, they all came from your Rolodex, right? Your personal relationship. Right. No, exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because I think everybody has something to teach us if we just listen. But if you can find teachers, oh my goodness, that you can sit at the feet of their wisdom, you know. And um, I like to say that I've learned how to do right things by finding the 99 ways that don't work. Mm. And finally, as I got older, I started, you know, trying to find those voices that that are just smarter, wiser, have been there and uh, really leaning into those. It's, um, yeah, everything from Richard Rohr, you know, everything from spirituality. I love Thomas Hubel, who is, do you, are you familiar with him? He does collect, not. collective trauma work and he's um, a mystic from Tel Aviv um, to William Urey, who wrote Getting to Yes. And this that one Harvard, I read. Harvard Negotiation Project. I did yep. a two year um, thing with him and Thomas Hubel called uh, Mediate and Meditate. And it was. It was on dealing with conflict. And part of it was mediators around the world who talked about the um, Israel-Palestine conflict, which um, I, I believe William Urey has been involved with. So um, yeah, I, I um, because I like to learn, I think the best part about that is just meeting great teachers. I had a mentor say to me one day, Mark, you wouldn't worry quite so much about what other people thought of you if they if you only realized how little they actually did. <laughs> That's a great lesson because I tell people, you know, when we mess up and we're embarrassed or we do something and we think everybody's talking about us because we made that mistake, I say, you know what, you're going to get talked about for two minutes and then you're forgotten and they're looking at the next person's mistake. Yeah, the so, next headline news is going to grab That's exactly their right. Yeah. So before we run out of time, I want to ask an important question. Something I believe is what I call the three things formula. So if you're going to win basketball games, it's defense, free throws, and rebounds. In leadership, it's where's the bus going? Who's on the bus? Are they in the right seat on the bus? Right? So there's always three things. So I, again, I'm a simple guy. So I take complicated subjects and try to make them simple. Right? Everybody's mm -hmm. looking for three things, appreciation, respect, and understanding. So what are the three things that I need to know to resolve conflict? Listen. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. So listen to understand. And um, for now. So everything is for now, right? Like even the, what they're saying, what they did is for now. So I think it's important that things aren't forever. They're for now. This is just for now. It's temporary. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, things wow. work until they don't, and it's okay <laughs> that you have to come up and renegotiate. I guess that would be probably my third word if you just want words. It would be renegotiate. Listen, listen for what's right, renegotiate, and be kind. I mean, I think be kind is, is you can be honest, you can be, you can, kindness isn't always about being a pushover. It's about delivering something that's hard to hear in a kind way. Yeah, there's a book called You're Perfect Right by Alberti. I read that 35 years ago. And he basically said there's three ways to handle something. There's unassertive, there's assertive, and then there's aggressive. Mm. 
And I had to learn that distinction, you know, because I was most of the time I was aggressive. My wife was unassertive. But both of those don't serve anyone. Uh, but the one in the middle is the one, the healthy choice. Say, I know you're busy, excuse me, but I think you brought the wrong order, you know, or to a waiter or whatever. But instead of getting upset, and that took me a while to figure out, you know, to choose that middle choice. That's, boy, that's a great insight, though. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase this to make sure I understand it. So listen, empathy, to get to understanding that it's for now, uh, things will work until they don't, and be kind. Mm -hmm. That works. Boy, that's pretty good advice. Wow. I can't wait to read your book. Oh, uh, yay. <laughs> I know. And I, I'm so grateful for uh, for you making the time out of your busy schedule to, to be a guest on this uh, on this crazy podcast I do. Yeah, uh, I've really enjoyed it, Mark. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And last thing, P.S., the, the best thing you could say to close our conversation. Um, yeah, so I guess I would say that's a hard one. I would say <laughs> that don't, don't forget that people matter. Like we, we all have a story. We're all, we're all a story. There's more than what we see and we are more than the part of us that you, that you don't agree with. Um, and I think William Urey says separate the people from the problem, which is one of my favorite things, because we make the person the problem. Identify what the problems are. Solve the problems because you can't solve for people and look at the best of people. Remember, they're good parts, too. And I know that's a lot. That's probably not one thing, but they're kind of related. No, that's awesome. That's great advice. I had a little quote on my desk for years that said only one life that soon is passed, only what's done with love will last. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Kimberly. You are the best. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. HVC Technologies, Mitsubishi Electric is committed to continuous innovation around efficiency, comfort, and wellness. From electric cars to electric water heaters to electric heating and cooling, the future is electric. The demand for all of our electric heat pumps have never been greater. So there's no better time to join our community of premier contractors and grow your business. Here are some of the reasons why partnering with Mitsubishi Electric is a great idea. Mitsubishi is the number one selling heat pump in America and has been the industry leader for over 35 years. Mitsubishi offers local technical support and has a network of excellent distributors. Mitsubishi's regional sales and marketing teams are available to meet with you and help you grow your business. To find out more, contact MitsubishiComfort.com. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me at 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at sparkingsuccess.net. Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, simply go to my website, www.sparkingsuccess.net. And remember, make it a great day unless you have other plans.